Hello everybody, welcome to a bonus episode of Floor Fight, the Post Rider serialized podcast in which each season we assemble a politics bracket and pit our contestants against each other to crown the ultimate winner and kind of in a way the ultimate loser when you think about it based on what we're doing it on. I'm your host and announcer, Michael Levito. Thanks, Mike. I'm your other host and your floor manager, Lars Emerson. So you may know from our episodes thus far, we've been whittling down, so much whittling as Mike likes to say, <laughs> uh, a bracket of losing presidential candidates to see who was the best president we never had. But in this bonus episode, we wanted to seriously unpack something that kind of complements the series. Right, we wanted to kind of dive in a little bit more into these losers of presidential elections and find out how they would have handled the major events and things that unfolded during their presidency that the people who defeated them ultimately had to face. So this is Floor Fight bonus episode, Al Gore. Just a reminder that you can catch our regularly scheduled episodes of Floor Fight every Tuesday to see how these candidates have fared in our big bracket. But for this bonus episode, as I mentioned, we want to specifically talk about Al Gore, specifically what would have happened had he won the 2000 presidential election over George W. Bush. How would he have handled 9-11? How would he have handled, or would he have even had to have handled, the series of wars in the Middle East? And how would America and the presidency be different as a result of his leadership? These are all great questions, Mike, that I look forward to unpacking. So instead of managing our bracket over at thepostwriter.com slash floor fight, which is my job on most episodes, today my main job is I get to introduce our special guest uh, here with us to discuss the potential Gore presidency and the prevailing world issues of the time. So with us is a friend of the site and foreign policy expert, Dan. Dan talked with us over on the Politics Express podcast about the situation in Ukraine and with NATO, and we loved his incredibly detailed insights. So we're bringing him back for this and maybe some more bonus episodes of Floor Fight. Welcome, Dan. Hello. Thanks for having me. I, I just want to clarify. I feel like now I'm on all these topics, you know, I, I bring in, <laughs> we have Ukraine, we're talking about 9-11 now, <laughs> maybe one day in the future, something more uplifting. And <laughs> AKA the angel of death. <laughs> yeah. Just really loves getting into all those, the, the grimmest possible subjects, but, um... I am an optimist as everyone who knows me is well aware. <laughs> all right. Well, Thanks for joining us again, Dan. So let's let's dive into Al Gore and exactly what he was and why we're talking about him. He was, of course, vice president under Bill Clinton from 1993 to 2001 and was the Democratic nominee in the 2000 presidential election where he faced off against Texas Governor George W. Bush, who was, of course, also the son of Clinton's predecessor, George H.W. Bush. Gore, prior to becoming vice president, was a vendor from Tennessee. He was a journalist during the Vietnam War. He was also a member of the military during the Vietnam War. And he ran essentially unopposed in the Democratic primary. He was very popular. He faced token resistance from New Jersey Senator and former NBA star Bill Bradley, but he ended up winning very handily. The issues of this campaign kind of deceptive considering the very troubled 
tenure of Bush's presidency felt relatively low stakes. It was about a lot of tax policy, social security, Medicare reform, namely what to do with the massive budget surplus that uh, had developed during the Clinton presidency, as well as environmental issues, although even though that's what Al Gore is known for, they actually didn't have like play a huge, huge role in the campaign. And if you know anything about this election, you know that it's very controversial because Gore did in fact win the popular vote, namely 48% of the vote. But because of a controversy in the state of Florida and how ballots were designed in certain counties and how recounts were or were not handled or were or were not allowed to go forward, Florida is called for Bush. He wins officially by a margin of like like 500 votes, something like that. Just over 500 votes. And we talked a lot of this in our like two-part episode of Running Mates in 2000 election. We talked about not just Gore and Bush, but also the Running Mates, which for Gore was Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, and for Bush was former Secretary of Defense and, of course, eventually Vice President Dick Cheney. So as we mentioned, the Supreme Court essentially hands Bush the presidency. It rules that the recounts cannot continue in Florida. So Gore loses the Electoral College very narrowly, and Bush becomes the next president. So let's pretend like that didn't happen, though. Let's pretend that something happened. You know, maybe Ralph Nader didn't run, or maybe some counties in Florida designed a better ballot, or maybe the Supreme Court rules that, yes, in fact, these recounts can continue, and in fact, the recounts can't gore the presidency instead of Bush. Let's try and set the scene in Washington. I want to start first by describing the congressional situation, because it gets very, very interesting if Gore wins this election. So, congressionally, the House of Representatives had been under Republican control since 1995, the so-called Republican Revolution that happened under Clinton, perhaps notorious for giving us the speakership of Newt Gingrich. There's not a lot of churn in the House of Representatives in the 2000 elections. In fact, the Democrats actually posted net gain of one, while the Republicans posted net loss of two, whereas actually independent candidates posted net gain of one. Actually, can either of you name the two independent members of the House after the 2000 election? Oh, Bernie. Bernie. Sanders. Bernie Sanders. Yes, Bernie Sanders, congressman from Vermont, of course, currently senator. The other one was Virgil Good. What? Yes. The Virgil Good? <laughs> <laughs> Lars is being facetious in his surprise, but Virgil Good was actually the Constitution Party's candidate in 2012 for president. He was a uh, congressman from Virginia who had gone from Democrat to Independent to Republican over the course of his congressional career. Okay, so we have a 221 to 212, really 222 to 213 Republican-Democratic majority in the House. Now, in the Senate, what happens is that we end up with a more or less even split between Republicans and Democrats. By the end of these elections, we have 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats. So why is this particularly important? Well, it's important because one of the senators running for re-election in 2000 was, in fact, Joe Lieberman. Connecticut state law allowed him to run for both the vice presidency and the Senate. This did not sit well with Senate leadership. This would be the first of many things that Joe Lieberman would do that would upset (laughs) um, Democratic leadership, because had he won, he would have been replaced by a Republican, most likely because the governor of Connecticut at the time, John G. Rowland, was, in fact, a Republican. Ooh. 
So while when Bush won in real life, the Republicans effectively controlled the Senate because they had the tie-breaking vote in the form of Dick Cheney, Democrats would not have that same advantage. In fact, they would have a 50 to 49 disadvantage that would probably grow to a 51 to 49 disadvantage if Lieberman were to send the vice presidency. But this is a hypothetical situation, so here's the hypothetical I'm going to propose. Do you know what happened in June of 2001 in the Senate? You have, don't you have a senator switch parties? Yes, Jim Jeffords, a Republican from Vermont, leaves the Republican Party, becomes an independent, but decides to caucus with the Democrats. So for the purposes of our hypothetical, we are going to say that this change happens earlier than June of 2001, and that shortly after everyone is sworn in, Jim Jeffords shifts his allegiances to the Democrats, and now the Democrats have an effective majority in the Senate because Lieberman will now be casting the tie-breaking vote. Oh, jeez. <laughs> With that in mind, let's talk... The, the reason why that matters is because we want to talk about what Al Gore's cabinet would look like and the kind of people he would surround himself with. So I'll throw it to you guys. Who, who have you in your research seen that would make sense to be in a Gore cabinet? Who do you think he would appoint and all that good stuff? So the name I've seen a lot for, I guess I'll start with the, the two we really, I think, care about the most are like Secretary of State and Defense Secretary. Those are the yes, only interior, ones I Interior like. is not important for the, these. And so for Secretary of State, the names I saw pop up the most were former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell, who brokered the Good Friday Agreement in mm-hmm. 1998. And he was pretty tight with the Clintons. And Sam Nunn of, of Georgia is another name I saw saw a lot. He chaired like the Senate Armed Services Committee in the 90s, I want to say. Joe Biden is not actually a name that would not have been floated because he's he'd been on the Senate Judiciary Committee, but he will become foreign relations chairman in the 107th Congress, which is this Congress. So those are the kind of the, the few I saw for Secretary of State. Foreign policy, Dan, do you, do you have any thoughts on this topic? Yes, similarly, George Mitchell's name was quite high. I think the, the biggest difference for Gore is, I guess you get more of a, a traditional legacy feel from Gore's experience with the Clinton administration as opposed to Bush's kind of nepotism-driven familial ties of, of who he's pulling in. Exactly, yeah. You would expect it to be a lot of continuity from the Clinton administration to the Gore administration. And what, in fact, you got in real life was, in a bizarre way, continuity from the first Bush administration to the second Bush administration. (laughs) Colin Powell, who was best known for his actions at this period of time during the Persian Gulf War, which was, of course, fought for and won by the elder Bush. And then, of course, Secretary of Defense was Donald Rumsfeld, who had previously served as Secretary of Defense, I believe, under Gerald Ford. And was very influential in Republican circles long before Bush was even in politics. One name that I saw floated around a lot for Secretary of State was Richard Holbrook, who was like a State Department hand. He was Assistant Secretary of State. He was Managing Director of Lehman Brothers. He was Ambassador to Germany. He was also Clinton's Chief Negotiator for the Dayton Peace Accords, which Hmm. ended the Balkan Wars. And he was also actually Ambassador to the United Nations for a bit. He was, I think, considered a little bit more hawkish and kind of abrasive than a lot of other Gore's potential picks. But I think the potential of him being Secretary of State and his ideas on Iraq, I think, are very important if he were to be chosen as, as we kind of play out the scenario. Um, yeah. Any opinions on Defense Secretary? The only name I kind of consistently came across was Secretary of the Navy Richard Danzig. Yeah. I didn't get a strong name other than that. Yeah, I agree. Kind of going through it, there weren't a lot of names that jumped out at me. Danzig 
would also be a big foreign policy advisor during Obama's 2008 campaign. And he seems like a guy who's kind of poised to take a, a leadership role in the core cabinet. A name that I saw as well, uh, Sandy Berger which is just national security advisor. So I think he was pretty prominent in terms of jumping around between deputy and then obviously then as the national security advisor. So that's traditionally, again, a position that in the next administration gets kind of moved around. So another potential, I think, there, but maybe less likely than Secretary of Navy. Sam Nunn is also not a bad pick here. Like we said, he was chair of Senate Armed Services in the 90s. And I'm, I'm glad you went on that overview of congressional history in like 2001, Mike, because it occurs to me we're naming some senator <laughs> we mm-hmm. may not actually have the liberty to name if the Senate is like 50-50 or 49-51. But Sam Nunn has been retired from the Senate at this point. So I could see him in that hypothetical actually going towards the top of the list. I would just say the, the other names that I just thought was interesting as I was going through as far as who might fill certain positions. Um, it seems like a lot of people thought that Eric Holder would become Attorney General. Holder yeah. was, of course, Obama's first Attorney General. He was also a deputy to Janet Reno. And then I didn't really see an article point this out, but just doing some research, Ron Klain was Al Gore's Chief of Staff when he was Vice President, hmm. which would seem to follow that he would then become Chief of Staff if Gore were to win. Claims also played a big role in pushing for the recounts of Florida, of course. He was portrayed by Kevin Spacey <laughs> in the film Recount which detailed the, the Florida recounts and lack thereof. And of course, he's currently Biden's chief of staff. So we've set that scene. Now let's talk about kind of like policy priorities. This is January 20th, 2001. Nothing horrible or traumatic has happened to the nation as of yet. What do we think that the Gore administration goes in trying to do? I think so. So Bush comes into office with like this horrible bad taste in the real world, right? Is it just after the recount and the fact that he you know, didn't win the popular vote. And you kind of have to assume that that would carry through to Gore, right? Effectively, right? He'd be pretty handicapped in Congress, for sure. It's kind of like all the things Gore wouldn't do. He's probably not looking for, for tax cuts like Bush was. He's probably not going after stem cell research like Bush was. I'm trying to think of, like, the early Bush victories on the domestic front. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, right? Because Bush's Bush, of course, inherited this budget surplus, and his idea was like, this This just means we gotta cut taxes, right? This It'll be our gift to the American people. We don't need as much revenue because we, we have so much stored away. The Gore campaign had like a pretty extensive 10-year budget surplus plan, which included essentially making sure that Medicare was solvent, making sure Social Security was solvent reducing the debt, paying off the debt. It did include some tax cuts, but not big sweeping ones like Bush wanted, including investments in education and learning, expanding healthcare coverage, actually increasing national security spending, and uh, also set aside some money for environment and energy security. Another thing I would say is that Gore also probably does end up joining the Kyoto Protocol. As we talk about like all the other things that are probably going to happen over the course of the term, maybe not as something to like focus on too much but definitely would would be a huge shift from bush's energy policy which was uh kind of seemed like to do nothing well i mean the the issue with the kyoto protocol was not because clinton i believe also signed the protocol and the senate would not ratify it It and you'd have to assume that that would carry through through the gore administration if we have that maybe even more so from what you were talking about in terms of gridlock because he doesn't have the political capital then at that point to to go okay i have a mandate to lead kyoto protocol let's get this done and dusted at this point this is true so dan as far as like foreign policy pre-9-11 foreign policy goes you know we're at the end of history things are looking very rosy do you have any thoughts as to like kind of what 
the foreign policy priorities for a Gore administration would have been at this point? Probably quite similar to Clinton. Again, it's kind of the logical next step, right? I think the, the biggest priority would have been uh, the major actors, the traditional kind of security threats, specifically Gore and the Clinton administration was heavily engaged with the Russian Federation at this point. Uh, a lot to do with nuclear weapons and non-proliferation. Uh, so I, I definitely think there would have been kind of the dual threat that we, we see to a degree in the Bush administration. So you have, uh, again, NATO expansion happening in the, the latter days of the Clinton administration. So I think in terms of European foreign policy, I think it would have been much of the same in terms of engaging with our traditional partners. And then again, doing outreach to Eastern Europe and its infancy free from the Soviet sphere, while then kind of tackling, okay, how do we move Russia now in the right direction? Uh, or should I say the the U.S.'s image of the right direction. And then a, a lot of the rest of the world would then kind of fall under which would be more of this kind of democratic, liberalist viewpoint of the world at this time, especially coming from the 90s of like economic powerhouse that the U.S. is, they have the surplus. So a lot of economic engagement, a lot of uh, international aid and development in Africa, in Southeast Asia. Uh, but I would say, since, you know, we're going to end up here anyway, in terms of terrorism, I think there is an, uh, a renewed kind of urgency because you still have things like like the USS Cole, you have embassy bombings in the, uh, in the 90s and in this turn of the millennium. Uh, so I still think that is something that is slowly starting to pick up the pace, but again, probably still, like you saw in the Bush administration, quite backburnered, at least from the American public's point of view. I kind of think Gore would be much more prepared to, but go down that same kind of faulty logic as Bush had, where, you know, Bush was like, I'm going to be a domestic president, and that's like it. And I think Clinton very much, like, was a domestic president more than he was a foreign policy president. And Gore, I feel like, would also kind of have that delusion, right? He's like, I'm going to be a domestic president in the early 2000s. To be clear, I think Al Gore is, like, more qualified to deal with foreign policy issues than Bush, but... You know I think I mean? it's just like how, how Mike was saying, too. I, I think it's very much a end-of-history moment. I think c- coming into, like, 2000, 2001 time frame, America at this point is very much like they're brokering deals, they're dealing with vanquished adversaries on the world <laughs> stage, and they're, like, you know, engaging them in a way of, like, oh, we're your big brother helping you out now, as opposed to a strong confrontation. I think the only ones that you really have... Similarly, to show you how much progress we've had, it's like, you know, North Korea, still very much a a foreign policy issue in, in the same way that it is now. Missile testing, trying to engage in a meaningful way in that and not you know, getting fleeced, for lack of a better phrase, and, and like, Iran as, as a threat as well. But I think very much kind of on what the salient topic is, it's very much America, we're, we're strutting around the world, we're, we're making those deals, we're shaking those hands. Yeah, Pax Americana is at its height. Now let's talk about its decline. (laughs) So, obviously, the most important development of the Bush presidency, the most important development, arguably, of the 21st century, arguably of our lifetimes, was 9-11, or terrorists hijacked jet airliners, flew them into the World Trade Center, flew them into the Pentagon, killing approximately 3,000 people really shifting the focus of American foreign policy and society and eventually leading to what we call the war on terror. So we are assuming, or at least I'm assuming, that this still happens, of course, President. But Lars, you I, seem to disagree with I, me. I do. I, I Now that I've spent like a week actually researching this, I actually think there's a pretty good case that 9-11 does not happen. Or it happens in a very 
reduced capacity. And the logic for that I have is kind of twofold, right? So after 9-11, there was the 9-11 Commission created by Congress, and they, they put together all these findings. And one of the, the big findings was the whole recount situation and the fact that Bush got the tools of the presidency and the resources of the office very, very late before he came into office meant there were delays in security briefings, delays in getting a team assembled, delays in intelligence and all of that. And they were like, this transition period, if it had gone a better way, may have actually led to like the intelligence being in the right hands of the right person to stop 9-11. And you'd assume that Al Gore, having been vice president throughout that and even if the transition is still like not going very well, he's still more resourced than Bush just to begin with. I think that's non-negligible. I also think Gore was much more attuned to the actual risks of Al-Qaeda. I mean, there had been an attack on the World Trade Center already during Clinton's presidency, right? And just based on kind of Gore's issue area as vice president and his knowledge of like intelligence sources, I, I, I just think there's a pretty good case that Gore would have gotten the intelligence and known what to do with it. What do you think about that, Dan? I, I don't disagree on some aspects of it. I find it difficult to believe that a large scale attack like that wouldn't have gone forward and wouldn't have had a similar impact. I, I Yeah, I agree with the, the aspect of kind of, again, the carryover of the Clinton administration. By this, by the late 90s, Bill Clinton and presumably Al Gore are, are very well aware of the threat that Al-Qaeda poses. Multiple embassy bombings, multiple kind of attacks. And at this point, really, the administration is chasing Osama bin Laden around Sudan, around the Middle East, Afghanistan. They're tracking him. They are looking for him. So I, I do think there is a, probably a, a larger sense of urgency and a more continuity in terms of countering that terrorist threat. That being said, I think also kind of when you're looking at the 9-11 Commission report, I think there noticeably still are a lot of holes in the U.S. intelligence and in the U.S. kind of counter-terror infrastructure at this point. There are still a lot of siloing of resources. There's still a lot of domestic intelligence and domestic threat watching, not particularly interacting with what you see and the international focus on. So I, I do think there are a lot of these issues that kind of create a perfect environment for this to slip through the cracks. This is something that's, you know, the light was blinking red. You know, everything was flashing red by the time you get into fall of 2001. That's kind of the general consensus. And I don't know necessarily with the the mindset and the organization that you had with Al-Qaeda during this time that something large scale wasn't going to be, you know, executed. Yeah, I... I believe the phrase that the 9-11 Commission port used was deep institutional failings. And while I agree that Gore and a Gore administration would probably be better equipped to detect and maybe even snuff out this kind of a uh, attack, I don't think deep institutional failings set in over the course of eight months, right? Those happen way beforehand. Like you mentioned, sort of like the lack of information sharing, the, the siloing of resources, and just kind of the lack of a national intelligence director and really sort of like necessary coordination between the CIA and the FBI. You know, I don't think that's going to change necessarily. Yes, I, and, and there are some people who have written very reasonable arguments that propose that, well, if Al Gore had been elected, bin Laden actually could have been dead before 9-11 because they would have like striked at him. I'm not sure I would go prognostic that far, but I do think it's not negligible. I think it's like at least a 50-50 chance, if not better, that if Al Gore is elected and you don't have this, you know, continuity of government issue between 2000 and 2001, 
that you avoid 9-11? I do. I, I think... I think the unfortunate thing with all of it, even kind of as a, as a counterpoint, is despite any sort of institution... I mean, this was something that did take a significant amount of coordination and did have hiccups at certain points along the process, right? So, I mean, I, I, as far as I'm aware, I believe one of, one of the hijackers was initially picked up on, like, a visa issue at some point, and that's why there's like they were a man down on one of the teams. I mean, you had, in Germany, I know there's a cell that had connections that was kind of raided. So I think even throughout all this, there's a constant kind of cat-and-mouse game, which, frustratingly enough, from our, like, hindsight perspective, you can see that maybe a, yeah. a, a key few sections if something happened or would have been triggered uh this might not have happened at all i'm just saying there were warnings from the united kingdom from italy and from egyptian intelligence and israeli intelligence of an attack on the u.s involving hijacking of airplanes and listing numbers of terrorists like these are not things that weren't maybe they weren't communicated right maybe they didn't go through the right channel but these were not things that were not known that's my piece yeah, I, I mean, think, I think that's perfectly valid. It would also make this episode much shorter. Yes. <laughs> um, and ultimately well, unnecessary. Well, but let's say for the sake of argument that 9-11 does happen, or 9-11 equivalent event. Al-Qaeda strikes the United States, kills lots of Americans. In our timeline, the Bush administration responded by issuing ultimatums initially to the Taliban, the ruling regime of Afghanistan, ordering them to hand over Osama bin Laden, who was, of course, the leader of al-Qaeda. The Taliban did not acquiesce, and as a result, the United States invaded Afghanistan. What, what do we think Gore would have done in this situation? I'm going to mostly lean on Dan for this part, but I think the war in Afghanistan, to some degree, is probably inevitable. There are U.S. troops going into Afghanistan in some capacity. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I think with something of, of this scale happening at, at this point, it, it isn't really a, a toss-up, and especially what we previously mentioned, right? The Clinton administration was very well aware of the whereabouts and who bin Laden and al-Qaeda were interacting with, where they were based, uh, where their network was operating. Uh, so I, I don't think there's necessarily a big counterpoint to go with this scale of an attack, I mean, like Lars, you mentioned, there was kind of an outreach to go, could you please, you know, hand over bin Laden for related to like embassy, the embassy attacks. So there's clearly a, a dialogue and an awareness there. And I, I think after this uh, scale of an event, I don't I don't foresee some form of, you know, overt military action not happening. Do, do we think it's executed differently? Well, the war in Afghanistan, you do kind of have that, that global... Maybe not global, but liberal world order consensus, right? Is the, the traditional allies coming together. Right. The, the U.S. invokes NATO Article 5, and you have everyone kind of like, okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's get them. Nothing tells me Gore would have like not done that. Maybe he wouldn't have been as terrible at speaking as Bush about it, but I, I cannot imagine Gore being like not internationalist. Which I think yeah, will I come more into play in the next war, but... <laughs> and I also don't think there would be an issue. Gore would have been very effective at rallying those alliances, pulling that together. I mean, not that, like Laura said, not that much needed to be done probably on that front. Everyone was kind of like, yeah, this is a clear violation of, like, 
every international and kind of just moral law that you could think of. But I, I, I do think there's probably like, alluding to the charisma and speaking prowess on the international stage. Maybe Gore would have been a, a bit more effective at just delivering a message that was slightly more coherent. <laughs> maybe not coherent. That's a bit a bit much, but something that was a bit more structured. I'll say. Well, and Mike, you may know more about this just in your study of the conservative movement overall. <laughs> But you, you have to imagine, you know, the, the nation like swells with support for Bush in, in the real world. But in our Al Gore world, do you not see that same thing happening? Just Oh, I, you absolutely do. I, I don't think it's any different. I mean, even Jimmy Carter at some point got a little bit of a bump when he did certain things during the Iranian hostage crisis, right? Even though that was seen as one of the many things that helped sink his presidency. Yeah, I, I think it's hard not to imagine Gore's approval ratings you know, also shooting up into the 90s. Yeah. And he would absolutely have the mandate to, to invade Afghanistan. I think not just, as you said, Dan, from the American people, but also from the international community. It's it's really just kind of inevitable. And, you know, there, there's, I think, again, Dan would know more about this, but, you know, maybe there's an argument that it's a more of an internationalist approach than Bush took with it. Where I would imagine the biggest divergent point could be is sort of like nation building, right? After the United States topples the Taliban, what do they do? The, the the irony is there's like a presidential debate in which Bush like says I'm against nation building yes. and like attacks and they, Gore and they like and, completely yeah. flip. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think the longer the war goes on, and obviously the war in the real life went on for like 20 more years. You know, you you get less international support for it. And you also get some, like, much darker things happening as part of nation-building and just as part of the war on terror in general. And I have to imagine, and I and I, I think that that was, you know, two things. That was kind of like this institutional, like, we are better thought in some parts of the U.S. government, like the CIA. But it was also, like, the people Bush surrounded himself by who were, like, unitary executive theory. And, like, you can do whatever you want. It's, it's not our soil. I don't see Gore surrounding himself with those people. So I, I can't imagine, like, torture being the issue that it became under Bush to the same degree. I have to agree with that. I don't think there's a question in terms of response, or at least initial response to 9-11 in terms of action in Afghanistan. I think uh, regardless of who's winning the presidency, I think something is happening to that level. I think the biggest thing is the execution of the aftermath. And I don't know necessarily if I give a pass to Gore on doing a better job with nation building either. I think this is, uh, especially the U.S., as you can see, because they've had the two like largest, most recent examples of it. But this is an issue that has plagued the U.S. and I would say most foreign nations involved in this sort of military campaign for i'm just gonna say hundreds of years but i'm sure we could go back to you know further afield for examples so i think you, you have a very similar kind of like if we're looking at the most recent example in u.s history at this point so you have like vietnam right the u.s never even got the opportunity to attempt what they did in afghanistan in vietnam so this is pretty much militarily the u.s dominates the battle space in such a way where the taliban is kind of relegated to taking pot shots from caves, right? So they have such a, a strong level of dominance in that area that now you get into that struggle of nation building that I think the U.S. struggled with in Vietnam to kind of have a, a coherent strategy to really build that institutional strength to make it an independent and self-reliant country. And now you have it in a realm in which they have pretty much free, <laughs> free reign over like, all right, we've subdued the threat 
and now we have a country in disarray, and now we have to really deal with the particularities on the ground, which I think probably both Gore and Bush would definitely have struggled with, to a similar degree at least. You brought up kind of torture and things like that, Lars, and I guess I'm a little more skeptical that a gore presidency prevents those things just because I feel like that's a, um, like, natural... Whenever you have kind of, like, a security state sort of like the United States, I feel like that's kind of an inevitability in a way. Yes, and I, I don't really mean prevent. I more mean, like, you don't have the explicit, like, this is good, we should be doing this, coming from, like, very high the levels top, of yeah. the administration. Yeah, there, there's no As John say, U defending <laughs> yeah, the it. Yeah, the, the top-down approach, I, I would say, yeah, I agree with. I, d- yeah. I don't know if you get the, the green light on that from, you know, mm-hmm. you have attorney general deputy attorney general the white house council like all these people coming in and everyone just going thumbs up i I find it hard to believe that gore would have been in a position where all of his advisors were like this is the thing to do this is the thing to do and then he goes you know what i like this Uh, (laughs) i just find that very kind of what lars touched on particularly which i think is a very good point which is this idea of presidential power and that's clearly reinforced by cabinet members, you know, your Dick Cheney's, your, your Donald Rumsfeld. All these people are very hierarchical. They're very, like, the president is the commander-in-chief. They can do what they need to do, especially when it comes to security. So you have that hawkish element in there, which I think even in probably the most hawkish elements of the Clinton administration, we're still very much below that level that you see in at least, like, your Rumsfeld and your, your Dick Cheney. So let's talk about then the other kind of big development. I think to me, this is the biggest does it or does it not of the Gore presidency is the Iraq war. Now in real life, there were kind of, you know, Rumsfeld and and other members of the Bush administration, Paul Wolfowitz, were kind of really, I think even hours after 9-11 happened, contemplating invading Iraq, striking Iraq. It had been U.S. policy to pursue regime change in Iraq ever since, I believe, the Persian Gulf War. That was an official position of the United States that Saddam Hussein had to be removed as leader. Obviously, action was never taken to that extent under H.W. Bush or Clinton. But the United States, using some what I think we could now call faulty intelligence, alleges that Iraq is developing weapons of mass destruction and argue that this justifies an invasion of Iraq, which would eventually lead to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and then kind of lead to this larger military quagmire. This war, of course, was not as popular as the Afghanistan war. You get serious opposition from members of the United Nations, serious opposition from France and Germany, and to some extent Russia as well. Nelson Mandela, not a fan of the Iraq war. Um, I've I've said on past podcasts that this was, I think in my mind, probably certainly of my lifetime, the worst foreign policy decision. My perception is that Iraq was kind of viewed as an enemy even before 9-11. Obviously, you had the Persian Gulf War. But even after that, even between Persian Gulf War and 9-11, Iraq was still viewed as an enemy and as a threat. What does Gore do, if anything, about Iraq if he is president? I would err on the side of there would be no Iraq War. The biggest factor for me here, I think the war on terror and, and the Gore administration would be a lot more surgical and a lot less wide scale that you see kind of develop in the Bush administration and then even continued on with uh, the Obama administration quite heavily when you start getting into Yemen and other African countries. I don't foresee this expanding in such a, a rapid way. A, because the, like you alluded to, Mike, the, the intelligence just I don't think was there. I think these misgivings and these policy positions from the get-go were kind of embedded in some of George W.'s uh, advisors, 
and also again just the unilateral versus multilateral action uh gore is very much a statesman he's very much an international coalition builder and he has those good graces when it comes to afghanistan and wouldn't have those when it comes to iraq for the aforementioned reasons our closest allies who are like afghanistan is good to go we're very much like what's going on with iraq and i i struggle to visualize al gore at this point going yep this this the saddam hussein threat is not linked to this al-Qaeda threat, and we're going to go in and do a, a massive regime change, even though all our allies are saying we're not getting involved. I just, I, I don't think that's something that they would even imagine as a, a foreign policy that they could pursue. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to piggyback on that a bit. We, we've talked now kind of a lot about how heavily we think Bush was influenced by this set of bad actors that were frankly his advisors, right? But I think Gore's foreign policy would also have been influenced by his experience for eight years under the Clinton administration, right? And under the Clinton administration, Dan described he thinks Gore's style would be more surgical. And I I think that's right, because Clinton's style was certainly more surgical, right? It was like, we have an issue in Serbia, we're going to, we're just going to focus there. So you have an issue in Kosovo, we're going to focus on Kosovo. And, you know, was that always great? No, it meant we didn't focus in Rwanda because we were focusing on other things or because we chose that that one was not worth U.S. focus for right or for very much wrong. So I think Gore would not have gone into Iraq. I I think Dan's right there. I think the emphasis would have been squarely on Afghanistan because you wouldn't have had this basket of (laughs) deplorable actors saying like, hey, like, let's go into Iraq. And Gore's instinct would be to act just very specifically. The more interesting question, I mean, unless Mike disagrees and thinks Iraq like really happens, but the interesting question that that kind of leads me to is, do you get with more attention on Afghanistan in those early years, do you almost like end the war very quickly in Afghanistan? So I, my, my, I, I agree with you. I don't think Gore pursues the Iraq war. And I think even if he does start to do it and the United Nations and other allies tell him not to, I think he probably defers to international law in that instance. And I agree with you. Obviously, he's not surrounding himself with, you know, the neoconservatives that populate the Bush cabinet. So there's probably less of a push to invade. But I think that there are lots of people who still, even if they're not all in his administration, want him to invade Iraq. Right after 9-11, you get a lot of hysteria, and I, in some ways just by hysteria about when's the next attack going to happen? What's going to be next? Where's going to be next? And even if you sort of neutralize the Taliban, people might turn to say, well, Iraq, Saddam Hussein doesn't like us. What if he wants to do something? He he controls the entire government. And, you know, Richard Holbrook might be in the government. Richard Holbrook was a bit of a hawk when it came to Iraq, you know? Joe Lieberman was certainly a hawk when it came to Iraq. And so I do kind of foresee a situation where you have you have a bit of a split within the administration between Iraq hawks and Iraq doves. I think the doves ultimately end up winning out, but I think you get a lot of leaks to the press. I think you get a lot of Republican senators asking questions, and I think it becomes an issue in the midterms, and if the Republicans gain control of the Senate and maintain control of the House after the midterms, I think it probably leads to some like hearings and investigations. If Republicans control Congress after the midterms, then it leads them to ask a lot of questions about the intelligent failures that happened in the lead up to 9-11 and what intelligent failures might be happening that would prevent an Iraq war. And I think lots of questions start to get asked. Lots of blame starts to be put on Al Gore. He's focusing too much on the environment. He's focusing too much on the economy. He's not focusing on the threats face towards us. And the fact that there might be some people sympathetic to that view within his administration, I think could cause him a lot of heartburn. 
I do ultimately agree, though, that he probably does not invade Iraq. Well, <laughs> but I think I think him not doing so for some people will become a political liability. Well, and that's kind of where I was going, because if he doesn't go into Iraq, you assume he goes like really all in on Afghanistan. Definitely be under pressure to, you know, to make it look like he's doing enough to stop terrorism. And that's why I kind of think he goes in, <laughs> you know, he does like the surge in Afghanistan eight years early or whatever. And like, I am not by any means an expert in like the early years of the, the Afghanistan war. But maybe if you just, like, you know, just really surge it all in the first, like, two years or three years, like, you end that war. Or, you know, you get to a place where you're like, this is good enough. General Dan? Uh, <laughs> oh, promotion. Uh, <laughs> what you raise, Lars, is a good question. And I think that is, that is the ultimate question. Let's say we're putting Afghanistan more so in a vacuum. Uh, uh, Iraq's not happening and you do have Afghanistan, does that war outlast the hypothetical eight-year presidency of Al Gore? I, I don't know what the answer is, but I will defer to the, the reputation of Afghanistan as the, the graveyard of empires, right? It's traditionally a, a tricky place to operate, and I think that it does come down to, regardless of the amount of focus on it, there's been a lot of critiques of the Bush handling of Afghanistan because you get to a stage in, in those first you know first year first two years where things relatively speaking are going in a positive direction and then all of a sudden you get that resource shift to Iraq in, in such a, a heavy way and then you see all of a sudden Afghanistan goes from being like front and center from being the home base where this massive attack originated to almost a backwater conflict right so I, I do think there's something to say about having a, a continual focus on, on that theater. But ultimately, I think, especially with Afghanistan, it comes down to nation building at the end of the day. Is it going to be a successful endeavor to devote resources? And similarly to what we, we've seen play out in our, in our current historical timeline, you have trillions of dollars devoted to this as a, as a project and ultimately what has happened. Regardless of what you're looking at, I think that the navigating of having a coherent policy, sticking to that policy and understanding what goals are achievable, I think that problem is something that's going to plague both a Gore and Bush administration in this context. Yeah, I think obviously you said there was resource issues when it came to sort of dividing between Afghanistan and Iraq, but I think the bigger issue is what you said, Afghanistan's really perfectly designed to cause trouble for invading armies because of its inhospitable terrain, because of the numerous factions and tribal groups that make up the country. It's difficult to sort of build a, I think, resilient regime that will cooperate with the United States. I think that is the, the ultimate question in my mind is what's that goal after you get rid of that immediate terror threat, right? Mm -hmm. So once you get rid of Al-Qaeda and you get rid of the government that allowed Al-Qaeda to prosper, what is the end goal in that country then at that point? Because I think, and I think that's the thing that ultimately plagued all the administrations that were involved in the conflict of going, okay, on the surface, we're, we're not at risk here, but also we're caught in that middle. We're on the fence of going, if we go one way, it could happen again, but if we go too far the other way, then we're, we're here forever. And I don't, I don't necessarily see a, a clean answer to that. I, I agree, especially considering that I also don't think Gore necessarily finds Osama bin Laden faster than Bush or Obama, right? I, certainly, I don't think he finds him, you know, between 2001 and, say, 2004. Yeah. Um, which, before we hop off to, I think I want to transition out to the 2004 election, any other sort of policy opinions 
we have that might happen in, in a first war term. I, I mean, I, I feel like it'd be like Bush, right? Is this the 9-11, the post-9-11 world would like dominate a lot of it? The only thing I would add is like a, a brief ad is, you know, you have this kind of concept of like war for oil in the U.S., And you'd like to think that Al Gore, even though, like we said, his issue isn't like environmentalism yet. That comes like after he loses the presidency. But maybe you see a transition away from oil earlier in American history. And that sets us up way better for the next 20 years. I don't know. Probably more progress being made. I don't know if it's. Yeah, uh, enough progress. Yes, <laughs> is what I'll say. I think with it, I think the one thing I'll say, I think very much more probably a give and take situation, right? So where you have Bush being very much unilateral, this is the U.S. We are the top top dog. We can do what we want. I do think you get maybe a bit more of a symbiotic relationship between like Al Gore and the EU at this point, right? If the EU is leading climate action, I see that being probably more of something that's going to rub off in the, in the Gore administration to go, okay, these are our allies. We're going to work with this and kind of propel the U.S. into the direction where they're going as well. So I see maybe that being more of a, a, a give and take as opposed to, you know, Bush going, eh, we're the U.S., we're going to do what we want. All right, so we're going to move on now to the 2004 election. In our timeline, George W. Bush wins re-election against John Kerry. And I guess really the question comes down to, do we think Al Gore wins re-election? I think yes. I think Al Gore probably doesn't struggle to win re-election to the degree Bush does, just because of the things we talked about, right, is is Bush does not have a very good reputation by the time the 2004 election rolls around. He's lost all of that goodwill from post 9-11 because of this mess in Iraq. And the Iraq war has kind of become this unpopular thing he has to bear. We're assuming Al Gore has not gone into Iraq. He's focused, you know, more intensely on Afghanistan. I, I guess I see that as a plus for him electorally. Yeah, I, I agree with that. At the time and even now, more so with you know hindsight, I think the Iraq War is that albatross around Bush's neck at this stage. I think it, it's something that, again, doesn't happen. And depending on the strategy Gore would pursue then in Afghanistan, it does open him up to be a bit more involved in the domestic realm, a bit more involved in kind of economic and just engaging in the, the domestic electorate that you just don't see perhaps as much on that, you know, with two conflicts now brewing with uh, the Bush administration. So I'm much more skeptical about either of you. Okay, I, I have sort of like my, my kind of, my half-educated sort of political science take, and then I have sort of like this little narrative I've written myself. So the, the political science thing is that like, I just think it's very, very hard for a political party to win four presidential elections in a row. It happened from 1932 to 1948 when the Democrats won five elections in a row. Four of them, of course, were by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then it happened basically between, like, 1868 and whenever Cleveland was elected for the first time. Basically, you have this long string of Republican wins. In either of those those cases, there is a huge paradigm-shifting change to American society, right? You have the Civil War and Reconstruction, and you have the Great Depression and the New Deal. As as traumatic as 9-11 was, I don't know if it represents that same level of a paradigm shift for American politics. And I'll say this. Here's the, like, the worst case scenario I've written for Al Gore, right, when it comes to his re-election effort, okay? 
The United States invades Afghanistan. We are now in year three of being in Afghanistan. We still do not have Osama bin Laden. American soldiers continue to die in Afghanistan. There's no end in sight to our engagement there. We don't really know what we're doing there. We still can't find the people who did this. There is still mounting pressure from Republicans and, in fact, from some Democrats for Al Gore to invade Iraq. Who is the person who came in second place in the 2000 Republican presidential primaries? John, John McCain, McCain. whose course, big claim to fame is his military career. John McCain is probably a very appealing figure to some people in a time of war. And I also think Al Gore will probably get it from both sides when it comes to the Democrats, right? He will probably have people like, say, Dennis Kucinich and Bernie Sanders who don't like the way the Afghanistan war is being executed and want a plan for withdrawal. I would actually not be surprised if, say, Dennis Kucinich or Russ Feingold ends up running against him in a primary. The same thing it goes for someone like, say, Zell Miller, a senator from Georgia at the time, who would actually endorse George W. Bush in 2004. I could see him pushing for a more aggressive strategy in Afghanistan and an invasion of Iraq. Al Gore then has to fight after sentiment with his own ranks. John McCain wins the primary. He selects someone like Mike Huckabee to shore up his right flank. And I feel like in that situation, you could very much see John McCain defeating Al Gore in 2004. I would strongly push back against that for a number of reasons. For for one, your case that it's very hard for a party to win four terms in a row is true historically, but it's not because of, there's no like science behind that. It's just like, it just hasn't happened. It came very close to happening several times, right? And I think 9-11 is paradigm shifting enough. I mean, Bush, despite not being very popular, won re-election. You know, half of your argument is also that Al Gore you know, gets a lot of pushback for the Afghanistan war and, and that the people are upset that it's not going well. But Bush did not experience that in 2004 around the Afghanistan well, war. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You're saying Bush wasn't very popular, but also he didn't experience any pushback. <laughs> Bush, the Afghanistan war was still popular, right? Bush was not popular because of the Iraq war in 2004. Sure, I, I, okay, I understand that, but I feel like it's a little disingenuous to say a protracted foreign conflict with no end in sight. One of them is going to help a president, one of them is going to hurt them. But I think that is true in this case. I don't know, but just to, just to jump in, but I mean, obviously different political parties, but you do have back-to-back two terms, right? You have Bush, who's in Iraq and Afghanistan, went ter- two terms, and then you have Obama, who mm-hmm. ostensibly, although different, uh, different, you know, times in that conflict, he's yeah. still involved with two prolonged conflicts at that point, and he even campaigned against, like, you know, we're going to yeah, start yeah. winding things down, yet it still was something that he could overcome, so... Mm-hmm. I still think, yeah, I, I just, I find, yeah, what Lars was saying with the Iraq war, if George Bush could overcome that, I, I, I do struggle to kind of visualize Al Gore failing if Iraq didn't happen in this kind of alternate reality. I will actually give you numbers here too, right? So in 2004, the <laughs> Afghanistan war is still polling, you know, 75% of Americans. Three and four are saying like, no, the United States did not make a mistake in going into Afghanistan. Whereas it is almost 50-50 on the Iraq war. And actually there's this big dip at the end of 2004 where a lot of Americans turn pretty dramatically against the war and it goes below majority approval in Iraq. So I think Al Gore has a better case to be reelected than Bush and Bush won that election. And that's true. I think you get some interesting people who run in the primary of that election if that's the direction you want to go. Like who? I think Huckabee is, is, was like top of mind for me, right? Mm. As he's been governor of Arkansas McCain definitely runs just because Republicans had a habit up until recently of just nominating whoever came second. Mm-hmm. 
I think uh, Jim Gilmore may actually mm-hmm. run. You know, he's uh, governor of Virginia until 2002. And Paul Lenti, uh, the governor of Minnesota and former representative Tim Paul Lenti, I think actually kind of tries to take almost the Mitt Romney lane in a way. I bet Rudy Giuliani runs too. Ooh, yeah, I could see that. You know, he's 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 closer to being America's mayor in 2004 than he was in 2008. That's that's true. Yeah, I I think you're right though. I think McCain probably wins that yeah. nomination. Yeah, and I think he is the strongest person to go against Al Gore for the reasons you say. I will give you that. Mm-hmm. But and this is the third part of my pushback to you, Mike, is Democrats do nominate someone with more military experience to go up against Bush. Well, okay, in yeah, 2004. but yes, and then he endures this like really awful smear campaign about his record. He was also a noted anti-war activist. It's not exactly like one to one. No, but you know, yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll we'll have to have come up with another podcast to fight out that scenario more. So. You know, we talked a lot about Afghanistan and Iraq, and rightfully so. There are other things that go on around the war on terror and during the Bush administration, like illegal wiretapping on American citizens. There's the passage of the Patriot Act. How do we think these the issues play out under a Gore administration, if they play out at all? I kind of think the Obama administration is the best guide here in that I think it kind of still happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was, I was, I was going to say. I think in this, in this time frame, right, it's like the perfect shiny new toys in the intelligence sphere, right? Like, we have the capability now to collect all this information. And I, I think that is something with the hysteria element. I think that's something that's going to be specifically looking at from like a gore perspective. I think that's a lot, it's a lot easier of a pill to swallow as opposed to perhaps like a blatant like the torture memos that you see come out, right? I think them going, this is something to, we can filter it, we can do it in a way that's kind of clean. That kind of argument is a lot more persuasive and probably a lot more invasive, uh, even in a Gore administration. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree that some version of those things end up happening anyway. Like we said, kind of a, a hysteria and, and really a sort of like willingness to, to, to embrace the measures you find in the Patriot Act and all that. Anything else we want to say? Do, do we want to sort of like, if we're living in a world where he wins two terms, we want to talk about like Katrina or the recession or something like that? I think he handles Katrina better. I think it'd be pretty hard not to. Yeah. I think the recession still happens. There are people out there who will like definitely tell you, no, the recession will not happen. But I think they're wrong, having studied the financial crisis for years. Because, you know, I think Gore more or less takes the Clinton administration approach to deregulation and whatnot. Not that that's even like the entire driver behind it. but And yes, the Bush administration really leaned on people to like buy houses they couldn't afford. But so has like most presidential administrations historically. Politicians are just really into Americans buying houses. So I, I, I kind of think that still goes out and then a Republican wins in 2008. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I don't think you get a meaningful, I mean, outside of like certain tax cuts, you know, I don't think you get a meaningful difference in like fiscal and economic policy that would prevent a recession. Anyway, as far as like other domestic policies, you know, I guess maybe there's no child left behind act, <laughs> you know, I guess yeah. the other big one, but it, that's not as fun to talk about. Um <laughs> Because we all couldn't learn very well because it passed. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I went to a blue ribbon no child left behind school. All right. Okay, so I think we'll start to wrap this up. And leave us with this question, one that we essentially tried to answer in Floor Fight. Would we be better off had Al Gore won in 2000? Yes. I think Al Gore is one of the most definitive cases that we can say, like, we would be better off. And I'm going to paraphrase exactly what you said from an episode of Floor Fight, Mike, there's not a lot of people who, like, if they had a time machine, they'd go back to the election of 2000 and be like, 
we just really got to make sure Bush wins this one. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone dislikes Bush. He was an incredibly unpopular president, even among Republicans by the end. And I think he was very ill-suited for the challenges America faced in the 2000s. Yeah, I, I think it's very telling that the coalition that essentially brings Bush into power, which is kind of this alliance of the religious right, neoconservatives, fiscal conservatives, has now pretty much splintered. And the neoconservatives like Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz are kind of among the more influential coalition in the Republican Party now are kind of persona non grata. Yeah. You know, the Republican Party of today is like very much created in reaction to the Bush Party of yesteryear. And I think we all agree that's bad that, that the Republican Party is the way it is now. Yeah, just just in terms of, I'll always bring it back to foreign policy, but internationally speaking, I don't think in, in recent history you really have a president who did so much to take the, the pinnacle of our goodwill, right? This is, 9-11 was something that was, was tragic and that really the world rallied around the U.S. and their cause and were like fully behind it. And I, I don't think you see really see a, a president in recent history take all of that ideological, moral authority that was thrust upon it and just so absolutely ruin it. By the, by the end of the Bush administration, I, I think the international and that all that goodwill is, has just been completely left behind. And in its place, you have Iraq, you have torture allegations, you have even getting into the nitty gritty of like, you know, just blatant corruption of war resources with Iraq and Dick Cheney. You get all these things that just... Looking back in hindsight, I think that I think there's a clear kind of downgrading of uh, of the, the U.S.'s position from coming out of the Clinton administration. So I think it's pretty resounding that it did not pan out. If you were going to chart the the trajectory based on the '90s, I, I don't think the Bush administration did anything to help that arc. A thing we've grappled a lot with while going through four fight is your Jenga theory, Mike, <laughs> where it's like, how can we pull out these pieces so it doesn't mess up like the good parts of American history? I think this is one of the clearest places where I would just like rip off the entire top of the Jenga tower and put on entirely new blocks. And probably 80% of Americans would agree with me. <laughs> yeah. We I are think creating it, good by yes. adding a Gore presidency. Yes. I, I think pretty much everyone would agree. I, Things would get awful interesting, I think. Like, Joe Lieberman as vice president, I think, would just be very, uh... <laughs> that's, like, I think a weird, like, kind of wild card, just because... Yeah. Not that I think it would make a meaningful difference. I just feel like if you ask, like, people on the street who Gore's running mate was in 2000, very few people would get it right. <laughs> just um, listeners of our show, Mike. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that, but it'd be weird. <laughs> so, now that I'm just to the point where I'm just rambling about vice presidents who never were... <laughs> Let's uh, let's close this episode and our conversation on the alternate universe where Al Gore becomes president. Lars and Dan, thanks thanks for joining me. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and thanks for listening, oh listeners out there. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found, or you can also just go to thepostwriter.com and find it there. Where you can also stay tuned into our live updating bracket at thepostwriter.com/floorfight. To see how each candidate fares as we whittle them down, whittle, whittle, whittle <laughs> down over the course of the series. Tweet at us at the Postwriter, email us at contact at the Postwriter.com to let us know what you think, and stay tuned for the next episode of Floor Fight.